Welcome to the City Road Podcast. Join us on City Road as we travel along the frontiers of urban and housing research. Follow us on Apple Podcast and find out more about the show at cityroadpod.org. City Roaders, we need to talk about homelessness. Recently, the New South Wales State Government passed legislation in order to remove a group of homeless people who'd been camped for several months in Sydney's Martin Place. They'd camped just metres from State Parliament and some of Australia's largest banks. The camp was a response to the lack of affordable housing and was an attempt to get the attention of policymakers and people like you and me. In Melbourne, the Lord Mayor has also tried to introduce bylaws that would ban people from sleeping on the streets of the Central Business District. And elsewhere in the world, cities are grappling with the problem of how to manage the growing problem of homelessness. Today on City Road Podcast, we ask, has homelessness always been a problem? And what are the factors that have led to the so-called crisis of homelessness that we've seen in recent decades? And who are the invisible homeless anyway? Tom Baker, a lecturer at the University of Auckland, has been researching the issue of homelessness and he's joining us in the City Road studios today. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dallas. Let's start off with this idea of homelessness. What is homelessness? How do we understand that as a term? Unlike a lot of terms, homelessness almost defines itself. It suggests its own definition. So a state of being without home, a state of housing deprivation, but it's important to remember that it's not houselessness, it's homelessness. So being without a house, a physical structure, means you're without a lot of things that come with the things we associate with being human, human needs. We need shelter, of course, but we also need the security of having a place to call our own, to exclude others from. So homelessness implies being without a house, but being without the other things that having a house is associated with. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea that being homeless is not necessarily connected to the physical object that is a home. Could you explain that for me? It's a very fascinating idea. Sure. So the Australian Bureau of Statistics, their definition is useful in this regard. They define homelessness as When a person does not have suitable accommodation alternatives, they're considered homeless if their current living arrangement is one or more of three things. Whether their current living arrangement is in a dwelling that's inadequate, so inadequacy might mean that it doesn't have a roof, it doesn't have four walls, it doesn't provide basic services as shelter. And the second thing is that their current living arrangement involves no tenure or their initial tenure is short and it's not extendable. So tenure meaning you might have, if you're living in a rental property, your rental property, you have tenure for one year, the space of the lease agreement. If you own a property, your tenure is indefinite, but you'd be considered homeless if your tenure is uh, non-existent, that you might be kicked out the next day or immediately. And the third thing is that their current living arrangement does not allow the person to have control of or access to space for social relations. And I suppose it's those social relations that gets at why it's homelessness and not houselessness, Mm. that we all 
live in dwellings in part for shelter, but in part because there are social relations to other people, other members of the household, and a relation to one's own psychological well-being. So I think the Australian Bureau of Statistics has a very sophisticated and in in many ways adequate definition of homelessness Mm. that gets at this difference between houselessness and homelessness. So does this mean then that if somebody who doesn't necessarily have a physical dwelling could actually describe having a home, but it mightn't be a home as we understand it as a bricks and walls and a roof and windows? Yeah, this is a complex issue that statisticians grapple with and social researchers grapple with, particularly with Indigenous populations that might have rather different conceptions of what a home is. And it's always risky generalising, but if you'll allow me some scope for generalisation... We will. That, we will. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I come from you know, Anglo-Saxon stock. Um, Anglo-Saxon folk tend to have a conception of home that is fairly tightly related to the physical dwelling. People from other backgrounds, not just Indigenous people, but potentially uh, Roma people who travel around and do not necessarily have such a strong connection to the physical, stable dwelling. But Indigenous people, they might have a spiritual connection to home as country, for example, here in Australia or in New Zealand, home as the location where particular tribal groups have spiritual and kinship connections. So it is a, a, a thorny issue and one that people grapple with. I don't suspect there's an easy answer to that, particularly when you do have to collect data on something. You need to establish some de- definitions in order to understand things. Mm. How do we see homelessness in our everyday lives and, and in our cities? How does it manifest typically? I think if you were to say to someone, what's your understanding of homelessness? I'm guessing that the thing that comes to mind is a middle-aged or later-aged male living on the streets. I could almost guarantee that's the picture that's appearing in the mind of the people listening to this right now. And really, that is a small minority of the homeless population. But this phenomenon of homelessness, if we want to track the history of homelessness, there is a sense in which there has always been people in Anglo-European countries that are without physical shelter. So in that very restrictive sense, there have always been homeless people. But the phenomenon of homelessness today is a widespread uh, mass phenomenon. So here are some numbers for you. And this gets at why I think homelessness is not a fringe issue, as it's sometimes thought about. There are 105,000 people in Australia that were homeless at the 2011 census, which is the latest census we have data for. There'll be an update soon. That means that, and I'm sorry to the listeners that don't like it when things are compared to the capacity of football stadiums, but it means (laughs) you have the Melbourne cricket ground there's not enough seats in the Melbourne cricket ground to accommodate the number of homeless people in Australia. There's just not enough. It's basically the same. There's two Sydney cricket grounds of homeless people living in Australia. There's a Melbourne-Sydney comparison that they probably won't like. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing is that 60% of those 105,000 homeless people are aged under 35. So it's a disproportionately youthful population, despite what we might, our stereotypes of the homeless. So back to 
where did the homeless come from? Where, as a problem, where did it come from? And you can go back to the 1800s, the sort of early half of the 1900s. Homelessness was really itinerant single males in search of industrial labor. Cities were industrializing. There was demand for labor. Um, people were being pulled in from the countryside, away from agricultural work into industrial work. And that meant that there was this population of itinerant laborers, laborers that moved around to find work. And those people are arguably um, were the homeless population in the 1800s and 1950s. And we almost look at that population with a kind of nostalgia that in the US, you have the figure of the tramp Mm -hmm. that would hitch a ride on the trains between places where they would pick up work. And, and for a and long the, time... And the Hoovervilles. Exactly. But at that time, it was arguably a fringe phenomenon. It was quite specific. It was related to a certain type of person, to a certain segment of society. And there was this big change in the 1970s and the 1980s that coincided with what academics and other people in these fields call neoliberalism, which is a reforming of the economy and of the welfare state in line with market-based systems. And these are associated with political figures like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. In Australia, it was associated with um, a number of Labor governments But nonetheless, these changes to the nature of the economy, meaning a transition from industrial to post-industrial economies, Mm -hmm. changing structures of work, but also a shrinking, in effect, of the welfare state. So you have... So what you're talking about here is structural factors and historical changes in the way that society is structured over time. So if we move out from the early industrial age and we move to somewhere like now, maybe the information age or the digital age, what changes are we seeing now in terms of homelessness and how it's presenting? Well, those changes, those transitional periods that you're mentioning, they ushered in what is commonly called the new homeless. And the new homeless were not simply itinerant males. They were young people, women, families. So this transition to post-industrial societies, a transition from the post-war welfare state to the neoliberal welfare state, if you like, really restructured the nature of work, restructured the nature of housing as well, and led to the creation of a mass population of homelessness away from the fringe issue and to something that's experienced by vast swathes of society. And I wanted to touch on the gender question, because I think that that's quite important, particularly now. How, how does the gender division play out in terms of homelessness today? So we can go to uh, statistics or data that's collected by specialist homeless services. So services specific to homeless people. And we see in there that six in 10 of the clients served by specialist homeless people are women. So 56%. You also have one in six of those clients are children. And typically the children are with their mothers, female homeless people as well. So the homeless population today is far more feminized than it ever has been in the 1800s and the first half of the 1900s. So we have really seen this rather dramatic shift from the homeless being almost exclusively male to the homeless being much more female in its composition. Mm. And something you talk about there is invisible homelessness or the invisible homeless. Exactly. Yeah. I spoke before about 
the street homeless population being the image that comes to one's mind when we typically think about homelessness, but that's a minority. And when I say it's a minority, I really do mean it's a minority. It's 6% of the homeless population in Australia is what we would consider street homeless. So people, and this is the ABS again, people in improvised dwellings, in tents or sleeping rough, sleeping on the street. The invisible homeless, or sometimes called the hidden homeless, are sourced from a series of other groupings that have some form of accommodation but does not satisfy those three criteria that the ABS um, look at when they're talking about homelessness. So it's inadequate dwelling, has no tenure or very limited tenure, or a, a lack of control over the dwelling. So you have, for example, 39%, almost 40% of the homeless population are people that live in severely crowded dwellings. So they're people that might have... Um, in effect, an adequate dwelling, satisfying one of those criteria, but they don't have any control over that space because it's so heavily crowded. You have 20% of the homeless population are in supported housing, so housing provided by specialist homeless services. And then you've got another couple of categories that live in housing with another household, sort of doubled up housing. So the invisible homeless is really the 94%, is 94% of the overall homeless population, which I think puts that typical, stereotypical, if you like, picture of the homelessness as the middle-aged man on the street, really puts that in, into perspective of just how incorrect as a presumption that is. So you talked a little bit about uh, getting statistical data there, and we do have the ABS, but you also mentioned drawing on non-government organisations for data and statistical information as well. How does that play out? There's a few sources of, inf uh, sources of information on the homeless population. Like you mentioned, the ABS is one of the important sources. The ABS, in every census, estimates the number of homeless people and... I cannot tell you how they do that. It's a complicated thing. You'd probably have to talk to a statistician from the ABS. But nonetheless, they come up with figures about the total population of homeless people, the demographics of the population as well. The other source of information is derived from specialist homeless services. And these are, by and large, non-government organisations that the government contracts to deliver services it tends not to be organisations funded from their own sources. They're often essentially instrumentalities of government delivering mm -hmm. services. Which is part of the neoliberal process as well, of course. Yes, although in the homelessness service sector, a lot of that sector pre-existed um, changes. So they, what happened was the new homelessness emerged, this sort of mass phenomenon of homelessness, the the response to that in the immediate term was charities, faith-based organisations opening up shelters, doing it off their own bat, so sort of as a stopgap solution. Government was not um, responding quick enough. They sort of filled that gap. Mm. Over time, that um, segment has been professionalised and um, funded through state-based, governmental-based mm. programs. So in Australia, it's funded primarily at the state level. In the United States, it's often a mixture between local councils and state governments. Mm. Those organisations are required contractually to collect data. And it in and of itself is a rich source of data that is much more granular in effect than the census data is. Is there any controls on who can access that data, how you access that data, the cost of that data perhaps? There's certainly uh, restrictions on who can access that data. 
the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, um, a previous employer of mine, they uh, do a lot of the analysis of that data. And there's all sorts of data custodian uh, stipulations around that. So it's obviously a very sensitive area of data collection and there's some personal stigma that's often associated with being a recipient of those services. So for those reasons, the data is generally only presented in aggregated form that means individuals can't be recognised. Another form of data that's more recent is data derived from street counts. These are data collected by volunteers and employees, often of local governments, that go out on certain nights of the year and do a street-based survey. They, they go to places where homeless people tend to go and they tally and survey those homeless people to create a more fine-grained picture of the street homeless population, which are often a very tough population to collect data on because they don't live at a fixed address. And that's how we usually collect information from people. Mm. We're talking about structural issues here, and I wonder if the structures that are creating homelessness are also creating the structures that make them invisible. So we have services propping up to house the homeless, which create a kind of invisible layer so that perhaps the whole system structurally can continue. Is that too hard an assessment? I think you might be correct on some deep level that while I don't think anyone would argue against providing services to homeless people and providing them shelter, removing them from the streets where they might otherwise be, the inadvertent consequence of that is to sap political pressure to act on homelessness in a more sustainable way. So you could imagine the sort of outcry that would exist if you had thousands and thousands of homeless people living on the street, the sort of pressure that would apply on politicians to really act on this. Mm. So you had the recent development in Martin Place where you had an encampment of homeless people that were in a very visible part of the city, metres from state parliament, you know, right outside some major financial institutions in the centre of the city where the Seven Network has their morning program, very visible place. Mm. And that was in part... A pragmatic response by those people you know we need somewhere to live we're going to camp together safety in numbers and create a community for ourselves albeit not on the terms i'm sure they would like mm. but it's also a political response it's saying here we are we're not look atomized individuals exactly yeah. um we need government and the public in general to act in a way that ameliorates this problem and what you had happen was the state government passing legislation that allowed them to sweep those people away, mm. which is, I think, not an ideal scenario that doesn't really address why those people are homeless. It mm. simply pushes them to other peripheral parts of the city and moves them away from public and political attention. Mm. I want to continue on with what we might do about homelessness. And I want to first start with what academics might do. What's our role in the debates and the research space to do with homelessness? There's a range of roles that academics can play, I think. On one level, they can play a role in uh, the generation of knowledge, the typical functions of academics. So they can play a role in understanding the drivers of homelessness, understanding the pathways into and out of homelessness. They can understand the experiences of homeless people themselves. And there's a lot of great research around this that, in effect, 
gets beyond some of the stereotyping of homeless people to unearth the stories of homeless people and the complications that arise when you are living on the street in particular. Academics can also try to understand how policymakers and the public understand homelessness. And this is where most of my research in this vein is situated. I'm interested in how is it that politicians understand the homeless population? Can you tell me a little bit about the connection between research and policy? Well, there's some typical pathways of, you know, generate some facts, insert that into the political process, those facts get taken up, etc., etc. That's a very simplistic understanding of how these things work. Another would be that academics can assist organisations that are involved in policy development, in service delivery, in advocacy even, to help resource them with the types of knowledge they might need to act more effectively. And academics are also citizens, so you can support um, initiatives that might seek to make positive changes. You can support political parties that might have a platform to address mm. homelessness in a substantive what way. What role does something like this, talking to the, not that I'm the media, but talking to the media or speaking out publicly about your views and about your research, what role does that play, do you think, in the public debate about homelessness? I'm not sure. I'm not I don't have a particularly cogent answer for you. One of the reasons why I'm interested in being here is because, as an academic, we publish journal articles primarily. They're read by learned folk within our field. It's a pretty tight-knit community. Yeah, it, we're, it we're talking to, to each other. Yes. And there's certainly value in, in that. I wouldn't want to diminish that. But part of the reason I'm interested in talking to you here today and maybe... Uh, your listeners listening to this now, is that I'd like to communicate some of those insights that academics have developed that might be useful and translate them in a way that makes sense for other people. Let's move on to the policy frameworks. Um, what can politicians and policymakers do about homelessness or what should they be doing? Maybe what shouldn't they be doing? Sure. Well, I think one of the big stories of homelessness policy and homelessness programs has been a individualizing focus that policies and programs have tended to shift away from addressing structural determinants of homelessness, mm -hmm. addressing the way the labour market operates, the way that low-wage labour does not provide adequate standard of living for many people, that might address how the housing market functions, mm -hmm. that in Sydney, for example, if you're relying on a benefit for your income, you have very little chance of um, paying an adequate amount of that um, as rent. You're often paying far higher proportions of your income than one would like. So there has been a gradual shift away from addressing the structural determinants of homelessness toward addressing individual factors associated with homelessness. So addressing things like budgeting skills of the homeless. So giving them the skills to better handle the meagre funds that they do have. It might be... Which assumes that it's an individual uh, problem, that it's not to do with the labour market itself or it's not to do with income. It has to do with how you're managing your money. And I guess what you're saying is we need a systemic or a structural approach that puts people that are experiencing homelessness into a system that is discriminatory itself. Yes. One of the simplest but not necessarily easiest things to do would be to rapidly increase the amount of social housing that's affordable, affordable housing. That's a tough thing to do for a lot of governments. It can be expensive and it rubs up against some powerful interests 
particularly the real estate lobbies and the like. So that is often just too hard for governments or it appears to them to be too hard. So what they do is they find things that they can address and that tends to be the individualised elements of these things. So it's about treatment services, mental health, physical health treatment services. It's about um, programs that seek to improve the the behaviour or even the moral constitution of the homeless. And I'm not saying that, that certain segments of the homeless population don't have physical health issues or mental health issues that would require some services, but to use that as the primary or even the only form of uh, policy and programs that address homelessness does exclude these factors that are continually producing the homeless population. The other thing that governments um, are fond of doing, particularly in the United States, is using uh, police and the courts to manage homelessness. So similar to the Martin Place approach of if we can push these people out, maybe homelessness will become such a chore for them that they'll just... um, spontaneously get jobs and they'll move and I think those, those two things go together the moral argument and the use of police force they have to go together because you wouldn't get away with the police force unless people the general population believed that it was that it was necessary yeah it it's has an implicit diagnosis of homelessness that one might say, is licensed by social understandings of homelessness. Mm -hmm. So you're saying, what can academics do in this vein? And part of what I'm trying to communicate to you, and that might, in its own modest way, seep into a broader consciousness, and there are lots of other people, academics, that do all sorts of public work in this vein, is to try to reorient some of the understanding of the nature of the homeless population. And if you see the people that were camped in Martin Place less as... Um, people that are responsible for their own fate, that are simply uh, might be lazy or have made bad life decisions, and you start to see them as human beings like um, yourself, then it makes um, using the police to sweep them out of prominent places a little less easy to swallow, I would have thought. Hey, Tom, it's been great talking to you today. Thanks, Dallas. So that's it for this week. But remember, we'd love to hear from you please leave us a review via iTunes podcast site. Just hit the subscribe link on our website at cityroadpod.org.